0: At our church in Chicago, there was a young lady who led worship and she played the upright bass and played hymns in kind of a jazzy style. And one week she introduced a new um, song to the church and and got people clapping during it. And afterwards when I was greeting the minister on the way out the door, I said, yeah, I thought the new song was great, something like that. And he said, yeah, and people were clapping. Or I said, yeah, Or he said, anyways, They said, "Yeah," and even people were clapping. He said, "Yeah, that was a big deal." And I thought he was joking, so I laughed. And he's like, "No, I'm serious. That was a big deal to get people clapping." So, uh, Mark 13. This might seem like a little bit of an odd section to be meditating on during Advent, but it's really not because it's about what's to come. What are the signs? That's the question the disciples ask, but Jesus doesn't quite answer. Uh, We want to know what's coming next, and in Advent season. Uh, One of the things we're doing is not only looking back to Christ's birth, but looking ahead to his second appearance. So it really is one way a fitting passage to look at. Remember in in the beginning of chapter 13, uh, Jesus leaves the temple for the last time in his life. The disciples point out the wonderful stones and buildings on the way out, and Jesus replies, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, that's where we pick up in verse 3. Mark 13, verse 3, and I'll read through verse 13. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one will lead you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But the Holy Spirit and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved this is God's word let's pray. Lord, your disciples, uh, were bold enough to put out the question that many of us have of what's coming next, what are signs of the end approaching. Lord, let us, uh, as we read your word, uh, be shaped by it, be challenged by it, be taught the right disposition to wait patiently, to live faithfully in the midst of the situation in which you have placed us. Amen. Well, after leaving the temple, Jesus crosses the Kidron Valley and he winds up over on the Mount of Olives, which is apparently 300 feet above Jerusalem, above the temple platform. Remember, if you were here last week, uh, or or, or two notes. First, he's opposite the temple is what Mark says. Um, In a sense, one peak is opposite everything, the whole city. you, You could say it's opposite anything, but it's drawing attention to this contrast. Jesus on one side the Temple on the other, right? this is the uh, showdown in Main Street in a cowboy movie that it 's they 're being staged one over against the other. Uh, if you were here last week, you might recall uh, the temple mount on the east facing side, so the side that would be facing towards Jesus and his disciples was about fifteen story high retaining wall, and this one hundred and fifty foot facade on the temple, clad in silver and gold and crimson and and uh, purple. Uh, fabrics, uh, wall hangings, whatever you call them, banners, uh, that sort of thing. It would have been a very imposing uh, sight. Josephus said even from a long ways away, when the sun hit the gold on the eastern facade, you would have to. Uh, it's so bright, shining off the temple, and crossing over the Mount, Mount of Olives. At least from some points, you could see through the doorway into the place to go. So Jesus, is opposite, the temple says he sat down. Now in our uh, day, you sit down when you're done with your work at the end of the day, but in uh, the Bible, people sit down uh, to judge, so judges sit down to, to, to do their work, to judge, and it's also uh, uh, sitting down for authoritative teaching. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus preaches in the synagogue for the first time, he reads a passage from Isaiah, and then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it to the attendant, and then it says, and then he sat down, and all the eyes in the synagogue were upon him, and then he begins to teach them. But when he sits down, everybody's waiting for it. That's the sign of uh, authoritative teaching. So I, I guess I could bring this chair forward and then sit down when I'm going to preach. Uh, might make for longer sermons if I'm not, uh, physical limitations imposed, but uh, I'm just joking. So, uh, so he's opposite the temple. He's staged. Uh, Mark's you know, setting the scene opposite the temple, facing the temple, and then he sits down. Peter, James, John, and Andrew is added in. Uh, The Mount of Transfiguration, the healing of Jairus' daughter, it's uh, Peter, James, and John. Now Andrew's added in. These four are the first four disciples called by Jesus all the way back in Mark chapter 1. Peter and Andrew, James, and John uh, are are called. And note, they come and ask him this question privately. Uh, Jesus' public teaching is now ended. It's a private teaching. Should remind us of some, uh, you know, when he teaches them in parables earlier in the gospel, then privately, what does this all mean? Okay, publicly, you said the whole temple is going to be destroyed. Privately, uh, hang on now, what's happening? And what do they ask? When will this be? What will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? What, what are they talking about? When will these things be? What, what are these things they're talking about here? Yeah, Abram? Yeah, exactly right. When no stones will be left standing in the temple. And it's important for us to keep that horizon in mind through this whole chapter. That Jesus is teaching in the first instance about preparing for the destruction of the temple. And we can too quickly jump to our own questions about the end of the world, the end of history, those sorts of things. And yet in the first instance, that's not the question Jesus is addressing here. What do they want? They want signs. What would it be like hearing that the central national and religious building would be destroyed? I mean, what, what kind of feelings would you have hearing, hearing this was imminent? It's a bit like, uh, I mean, we don't really have a national cathedral. I think there is a national cathedral, but no one pays attention to it, I suppose, uh, more or less, at least, uh, anyways. But, you know, if, if, if the Capitol building and a major religious building were destroyed at the same time, I and mean, that's sort of what, what's happening here, what? What would that be like? What would that do to your sort of sense of our country and of our f- faith, uh, our lives? A hit to our prestige, yeah? Yeah, like September 11. I mean, I was, a, I was the right age, so I was four when the Berlin Wall fell, uh, and so I lived in a bubble where it was like the U.S. is inviolable, and then to find out, oh, actually, we can be attacked on our own soil that it shakes your whole soul yeah. so it's understandable that they have questions it's understandable they want signs to be prepared jesus teaches them just a broad overview it's in two parts in both verse 5 and verse 9 the first word is watch watch uh, although our esv doesn't translate it watch either way it calls it see one time and guard the other but it's the same the same word is used a watch that no one leads you astray, uh, be on your watch, be on your guard uh, in verse 9. So it's clear there's two sections here. The first part is, uh, is, is watch out that you're not led astray, either by false teachers or signs. The second part is about persecution. So this first part is verses 5 through 8. They ask, what will the signs be? And Jesus' response is a bit counterintuitive. He goes over a number of things that you might think are signs and yet he seems to say actually none of these are signs uh, or, or, or don't, don't fix too much on them. His point is not to watch out for this or that sign. You know, when you see the sun rise over here and these stars here and that sort of thing, then it's going to happen. That's not what he's, he's not giving them a timetable to work out when it's going to happen. Rather, his point is not to be led astray looking for supposed signs his basic instruction in verse 5 and repeated in verse 6 or or, or implied in verse 6 is don't go astray don't be led astray Uh, and it, it it's i'm not sure what the right word is um goofy i guess is one word but often jesus is teaching in this section is used in the church in a way that's the exact opposite of what he's saying. He's saying, don't get caught up on signs and get led astray. And yet, at least on the fringes and at times in the mainstream of the church, uh, Christians latch on to different things. Um, and they say, uh, one time I was asked to go through, a, uh, someone donated a bunch of books to the church library when I was in high school. And so, can you go through these and figure out what are valuable and what aren't? And it struck me going through these books Uh, 10 reasons why Korea and the Korean War is Armageddon, okay? Well, obviously that didn't happen. 10 reasons why Vietnam, this is the beginning of the end. Okay, 10 reasons why the Cold War and Russia's the bear that that Revelation, you know, and it's like, okay, well, the Berlin Wall fell. Obviously that wasn't the case. But Christians, we want to latch on to signs and these sorts of things. And it's not just Christians, it's people in general, but we're not immune from this desire to latch on to signs. And so we need to be on our guard because this, block of teaching, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, gets used in the exact opposite way of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't get caught up in signs. Don't be led astray. Many will come in my name saying, literally, I am. And they will lead many astray. Um, It's not exactly clear to me what Jesus is saying. Um, Many will come in my name. That's claiming Jesus' name. And maybe he's referring to multiple groups here, but that's using Jesus' name as a sort of rubber stamp on our own agendas, saying, I'm coming in Jesus' name, listen to me, follow me, and yet he'll be leading people astray. And yet he says that they'll say, I am, which is that same I am that Jesus says in other spots, uh, and, and people are, see it as sort of a divine claim. And so are these people coming in Jesus' name also claiming quasi-divine uh, power for themselves? Uh, what exactly does that look like? Certainly between Jesus' speech here on the Mount of Olives and uh, the destruction of the temple, a number of messianic figures arose in, in Israel and led revolts against Rome and were all stamped out, but people were led astray from Israel, uh, from the Jewish people following these false messiahs. And certainly it's a perpetual or, or an ongoing problem that people use Jesus' name as a cover for their own agenda and it leads people astray. Verses 7 and 8, he talks about both wars and natural disasters, um, uh, two types of disasters. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. It must take place, but it's not yet the end. Uh, uh, There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, a variety of natural disasters. But what does he say our response is to be? should we do when we hear about wars and rumors of wars not be troubled, not be troubled. do not be alarmed don't be afraid it Says this must take place but the end is not yet this is the course of life in a twisted and crooked generation uh, wars happen nation rises against nation kingdom against kingdom it's the normal course of events the way of the world and then in verse 18 or uh, sorry the the end of verse eight, these are but the beginnings of the birth pangs. I think that's a dominant image that we should also keep in mind throughout his teaching in this chapter is all of these sorts of painful events in the world are like birth pangs or labor uh, contractions, that sort of thing. Um, When you first start having, well, when one starts having <laughs> contractions, uh, uh, no, I'm not, it's not first-hand experience here, but you, there's no, you know, it could be a false, false labor. It could be a week still before the baby comes. It could be the beginning of things. Uh, it could be the baby's coming much sooner than you think than the due date is, okay? Uh, it's, it's part of the course that leads to having a baby, but it's not a sure, okay, uh, we've had a contraction, baby will be here within six hours. It's not that kind of a thing. Uh, and that's the image Jesus is using here. He's saying it's painful, and yet it results in new birth of something new, the world being renewed. It goes through this painful process. And we see these tremors, these contractions, but it doesn't give us, it's not a firm sign, okay, the end is now sell all your possessions and go out to the desert or something like that. Uh, It's saying this this is the process of new birth. Is that first section, any questions or thoughts in there? Verses five through eight or three through eight? Okay, he shifts gears then and warns in verses 9 through 13 that there will be persecution. And indeed, we can read these verses as a preview of the book of Acts. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. Isn't that what happens to Stephen? He's examined by the council, the Sanhedrin. He's beaten and ultimately put to death. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Think about Paul at the end of the book of Acts. He's arrested, he's before the governors, uh, uh, local rulers. Why, for my sake and to bear witness before them. Jesus isn't saying this is some sort of a feint that if we can get you in front of the throne room and you bear witness, they're all gonna convert and the whole country will become Christian immediately. That's not what he's saying here. But he's saying, for my sake, you will suffer these things and you will bear witness, it's an act of worship Before the ruler saying the true king of the universe is Christ the Lord uh, and and I'm going to bear witness to him even at great cost. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Uh, Go and and proclaim this in in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the the programmatic statement at the beginning of, of the book of Acts. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand about what you are to say but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not for you to speak, but the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, this picks up what we talked about this morning about uh, work out your salvation for God's at work in you. And again, of course, if you use your own voice to speak as a witness. But he's saying in that moment, God is at work in you and will, through the Holy Spirit, speak his word. This isn't saying don't ever bother learning Bible verses, don't memorize you know, don't memorize Bible verses, don't bother learning the gospel or how to explain your faith. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, in the moment, uh, when you're standing trial, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child, children to rise against parents and have them put to death. Not a pleasant scene, but it's this picture of division that Christ comes... um, he bears judgment, but it's, it, it also brings judgment at the same time, because <laughs> members will reject members over this witness. Again, what does he say our attitude is to be through here? How should we respond? It's not a trick question. Don't be, alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Don't be anxious. Do not be anxious beforehand. Yeah, he's saying this is the course of things. This is what to expect uh, uh, to come. I just want to draw attention then uh, to two things in this in this section. Um, Notice, there's a little bit of a contrast here. Many will come in my name, saying, "I am He," and lead many astray. So these are claiming Christ's name but leading people astray. Then here he says, uh, uh, "And you will all be, ha- or you will be hated by all for my name's sake." You notice, Christ's name is being used in two ways. It's being borne by two groups of people. One is claiming Christ's name for their own agenda, leading people on their own way, using Christ to further their own uh, selves. (laughs) The other is suffering for Christ's name. And I think here there's a little bit of a rubric that we can use to sift. If someone comes in Christ's name, is it reliable or not? Well, are they putting themselves up, or are they willing to suffer for Christ's name? Uh, Are they, again, This I guess goes back to Philippians, are they putting their own needs first, Or are they looking to the needs of others? Are they willing to sacrifice, to suffer, uh, even to lay down their lives for Christ's name's sake? So the the name's used in two ways. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's interesting, the biblical language around salvation. We are saved through the work of Christ. It's an accomplished fact. Uh, I think, uh, well, in Ephesians 2, you have been raised with Christ. Okay, uh, it's as if our death and resurrection has already taken place. It's already a sure fact. Uh, then the passage we looked at this morning, work out your salvation. It's something you're meant to be working on right now. And then here Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, and all three are true statements. It's a past, present, future thing. Uh, in one sense, we're definitively saved only when we are safe in God's own arms, uh, when we're absent <laughs> from the flesh, uh, that final victory Uh, we've crossed the finish line we are finally definitively saved that's still a forward-looking thing and yet the verdict not guilty has already been rendered we already are saved and in between those two we're working out our salvation we're working the process of sanctification of being made fit for God's presence so it's it the Bible uses salvation in different, different ways and it's not contradictory, but we do need to keep alert to what sense is being used here. I think if we want to draw out Jesus' basic themes here, he's saying, look, stuff's going to come that will be troubling. There will be wars, there will be false teachers, there will be natural disasters, there will be persecution, there will even be division within your family. These things are going to come, they will be troubling. And yet his basic message in this context is don't be led astray. Don't get caught up in signs or false teaching and get led astray. Don't be afraid. He says more than once, don't be alarmed, don't be anxious, and don't give up. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Stick with it, even when the going gets tough. Hang on to it, even if you're hated for my name's sake. It's a blessing to be hated for my name's sake, to be considered worthy to suffer with Christ. So, he's, even while he's talking about these things that at times can be troubling to think about uh, things to come, uh, wars, rumors of war, persecution, all those sorts of things that can be troubling, his basic message is be calm. Okay? Don't be led astray. Don't be anxious. Don't give up. Stick it out. And I think that basic reassuring message is what we need to keep in mind as we work through, I guess, next week's children's program, then Christmas. So it'll be a couple weeks, but as we work through this chapter of looking at signs of things to come, uh, keeping that basic orientation in front of us, that his his purpose is to reassure us, not to frighten us. Uh, Yeah, and I think that that's how we should also sort through other Christians who make claims about signs and times, that sort of thing. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Leslie? Well, I was just thinking about uh... The fact that it says you will stand before governors and kings, um, meaning those governors and kings will see you as a real threat, or your faith as a, as a real threat. Um, you know, if it was. Um, I'm just thinking it just kind of speaks the importance of how the enemy works. Um, a if that's a real threat to the enemy. Um, obviously, we're going to be before kings and the governors. Then we're not just like the local police station. How threatening we are, if we're, if we're kings and governments who have power. Yeah. Um, yeah, or, or can be perceived. Uh, it's not always a threat to governments, but certainly governments that make totali- totalizing claims. We um, have a true king, and so it relativizes those claims, and a government that can't tolerate that is is threatened by that. Same time, I'm thinking through Jesus, um, He's also foreshadowing what he's going to go through himself. That he's going to appear before this council, uh, he's going to be beaten, and then he's going to be before kings and governors uh, before he is put to death himself. Um, Even his friends will abandon him, brother turn against brother. All these things are going to happen to him. And in Jesus' case, and then also in Paul's, uh, the Romans don't seem to see it as a threat so much as sort of a nuisance. Uh, Here's this interreligious argument going on that we've got caught up in and we don't really want to be part of. In Paul's case, is it Felix maybe says he um, I would set him free, except he appealed to Caesar. Like he's not really any reason to even keep him in prison. So that's um, something a little different. But yeah, there is there is a um, yeah there are implications for it is threatening the empires and totalizing claims uh, to rule. Yeah, yeah great. You have secondary rule, primary message is. He's telling them this so they would not be surprised. Also, yeah. So don't be anxious. Yeah. But also, what strikes me is that even amidst all of this, verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed, and we're going to be bearing witness before governors. Yeah. And we can rely on the Holy Spirit to help us. So yeah. Even during times of trouble, we don't fold. Yeah. From the Great Commission. Yep. Oh, that's right. Yep. And, and we endure to the end through the Holy Spirit. But yeah, that's right. Um, and I think um, as the church has lost influence very quickly in our country over the last decade, um, at least some Christians have thought uh, something's gone very wrong. Uh, and yet, that's not really the picture Jesus gives us. He says this sort of thing's to be expected. Um, that's the way of things. It doesn't mean the end of the world is just around the corner. It could be, so be ready. Uh, but we could have missionaries in space in a thousand years. Who knows? I mean, it's not for us to decide when the end comes. It's, it's God's decisions. I thought I saw someone else starting to raise a hand. but Yeah, Chris. Brad right, and general I were Christian rookies, in the 70s, um, there was a lot of prophecy. Yeah. You know, people were figuring out when things were going to happen. It was, it was a major trend in a lot of Christian circles. Yeah. We were on the radio. We went to a seminar that this guy put on the Calvary Chapel temple. And uh, this guy had convinced himself that he knew when this was going to happen. And yeah. I heard it, and it was a it sounded like a scholar. Yeah. He really worked hard, and he believed it. But I just kept coming back to this one tiny little scripture in Matthew 24. No one knows. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels or the Son. Yeah. The Father only. And I thought, that's my marching orders right there for all of this stuff. And so yeah. I put it aside. Yeah, Albert. So, this verse 8, these are about the beginning of birth pains, and you kind of implied that, you know, you giving birth is painful, but there's something on the other side. Yes. And so, I mean, this, I know it's not pointing to that, but you can read this as, this is the beginning of birth pains, and then all of a sudden, utopia will be here. Yeah. Is that, is, like, what's Jesus pointing to? as is, is he pointing to another event happening? Well, Because Jesus will have died and risen, so he's yeah. not pointing to that, yeah. because this is happening after that or yeah. So when we get up to verse uh, uh, 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out angels, gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Okay, that's uh, he 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 telescopes. I think is the right way to say it. That he's we're talking about the temple. Now we're telescoping. We're looking ahead to the very end. Um, I guess it's a bit like the mountains can seem foreshortened when you're looking from a distance. That they're right next to each other. And so he brings it together, but so the birth pangs, the final new birth is like the new birth of the world. The son of man returns. Um, everything between then and between when he's speaking here and, and the final end is birth, birth pains. Is that, yeah, yeah so, so no, I don't think we should look for utopia here in the world. And I think um, any time we try to bring utopia here, it creates problems. We should try and make the world better. Um, But if we think we can make it perfect, it always, um, uh, you know, no one wants to live in Soviet Russia. That's that that kind of a situation that uh, trying to make utopia here on earth just never works out. Um, When I met with the search committee here at Weiser Lake Chapel that night, I drove home, and I think it was Greg Laurie was on the radio that I was listening to on the drive home. And he had the funniest story about being a new Christian and and backpacking in the, I guess probably it would be Sierra Nevadas up there in California, and uh, and this long-haired guy showed up and claimed to be Jesus, and he said I was a new Christian, so I I, I knew this didn't seem right, but he kept arguing with me, and I, so I thought there was going to be trumpets and everybody would know. He said, so, well that's going to happen, but just before that I'm kind of checking things out first, so and this I had this whole thing. So finally after three days I had to kick him out of my cave that I was camping out in, and they said I saw him in town when I went down to get supplies, and he had two followers following him around whatever his little California, Ohio, or whatever it is. Uh, and, then, uh, and then he said, a few days later, I came back, and he had his front teeth knocked out. That someone must have got fed up with him claiming to be Jesus. And they he said, at that moment, it snapped, because I knew Jesus had all his teeth. So I knew this was couldn't really be Jesus. So, I think, yeah, that kind of, uh, that, yeah, someone claiming to be Jesus. And yeah, uh, many, many will go astray. I guess two went astray after this guy. <laughs> For whatever reason, that story stuck with me. Um, Let's turn to our time of prayer uh, as, we, as we conclude. I know, uh, Jack, you had some thanksgivings yeah. to share.